Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Rich Clarida here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York of Columbia University and PIMCO. Let's start just by situating this decision in the context of, of, of the UK economy at this point. Tell us a bit about sort of what these policymakers were, were chewing over. I think we were focused certainly on how this vote would shake out. Would it be 7 to 2 or 6 to 3? Uh, we'll look at the tone of the statement here in just, just a moment. But uh, economically, how do things look uh, in the UK right now? Well, I think economically what you see in the UK is there has been a slowing in the UK economy compared to the trend uh, before Brexit, but it hasn't been a train wreck. Uh, the economy is growing, you know, somewhere in the 1% to 2% range. Uh, the problem for the Bank of England, of course, there's huge Brexit uncertainty, and they've had a big depreciation uh, of the pound, which is feeding through into the headline inflation rate. So the challenge for them is, as Governor Carney says, they want to think of this as a one-off increase in the price level from the exchange rate. The term of art in central banking, David, is they want to avoid second round effects, which means more inertia uh, in inflation. Uh, but at the same time, they also are cognizant of the fact that inflation is above their uh, target and they don't want to be seen as being unaware uh, of that. Uh, reading from the statement here, yeah. quote, the circumstances since the referendum on EU membership and the accompanying depreciation of sterling have been exceptional, in the words of the, uh, the MPC. Monetary policy cannot prevent either the necessary real adjustment as the United Kingdom moves towards its new international trading arrangements or the weaker real income growth that is likely to accompany the adjustment over the next uh, few years. Uh, I, I mentioned that the way that this shook out, there, there was a sense here that maybe the chief economist might come on board with, yeah. with the Hawks on, on, on the committee. Are we starting to see some sort of shift, I mean, a seismic shift? Here, but a shift among the, the membership of this committee. I, I think we are. You know, a Andrew Haldane, very respected, uh, and really part of the. He's a young guy who's been at the BOE for twenty years, uh -huh. and and I do think uh, he's been hinting uh, that uh, that uh, he may tilt towards a rate hike. We did not get that today, but I would be watching him closely because so far, David, the people who supported higher rates have been the so-called external members. Um, and Andy Haldane is you know clearly part of of, of the of the core group. So we're he to vote for a hike, that would be a very, very uh, significant signal that they're that they're going in that direction. But it hasn't happened yet. How, how big a risk here is the risk of an overshoot? Of course, as you point out in, in a note, uh, mm -hmm. you, you overshoot the three percent mark. You got to send a letter to, yes. to Philip Hammond to, to explain why. Uh, are we headed there? Do you think? Uh, well, it could be. I yeah. mean, the Bloomberg headline I see is BOE expects uh, inflation to exceed three percent uh, in October. So, as part of their charter as inflation targeting, there's a formal requirement that they send a public letter. So you've got to sort of publish it on Bloomberg and elsewhere explaining why uh, inflation is above three. I think in this case, if they do exceed three, it won't be a hard letter to write. You simply say, look, Brexit is an unusual situation. We got a big adjustment. It's fed through to inflation, but we don't expect it to continue. Have you ever had to write a letter to PIMCO management? <laughs> okay. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, I have. Not about 3% Not public, but Not about public, other things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I could say good morning, everyone. David Gurr and Tom Keene on a most eventful morning, and of course, a lot going on in Washington. David, some of the tweets that we've seen so far. It's been what a backtrack from this important dinner last night. Yeah, so on the heels of that decision, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer seem to indicate there was some agreement that uh, lawmakers would work together on something to, to keep the DACA program uh, in place. The president saying no deal was reached last night. The president tweeting this morning about uh, the wall already under construction, repairs are yeah. being made to the extant parts of the wall around. 
the U.S.-Mexico border, yeah. and then he writes about DACA. Uh, does anybody yeah. really want to throw out good, educated, and accomplished young people yeah. of jobs, some serving in the military? Really, he says uh, with an exclamation okay. mark. Across this nation, Professor Clarida, as you have done before, there are smart people like you talking to young cherubs at the undergraduate level in econ yeah. about the most basics of basics. We're going to do that right now. Okay. What does immigration mean for the American economy? Well, it has a lot of impacts on the economy. It increases the su- potential supply uh, of labor, so that you know that that's good for the economy. On the other hand, immigration can compete with existing U.S. workers and ha- can potentially have an impact on wages. Now, that latter effect has been studied by labor economists. Uh, I'm yes. not one, but certainly I think that there, that that there's at least uh, you know that is an issue that that there you know and everything in life is a trade-off. And with immigration, you get more labor, you get you get in some cases more educated labor, but there is an impact on, on wages as well that needs to be factored in. But I would respectfully suggest that the political divide between Ed Lazier of Stanford yeah. and a guy named Kruger from Princeton is a Venn diagram of a lot of overlay that the politics of economists are on a common ground yeah. about immigration. Why is it the third rail of President Trump's Washington? Well, I think I think Tom that more, you know more broadly, you have to look at the trends of the last twenty years, and you're aware of them, and we're all aware of them. That we've had economic growth in the U.S., but it's not been it's not been you know wide widely shared, and in particular, wages for less educated and and workers have not kept up with the economy. And so, I think this is really part of technology, trade, and immigration. They're all working together in ways that are creating anxiety for a lot of Americans. Do people like you understand that? That interesting chemistry of technology, wages, immigration, the spirit of the economy, or is it a mystery that we're only going to learn about 10 or 20 years from now? Well, I think that's an excellent point because I think, unfortunately, the economics profession devoted too little research attention to to, to these issues. And in particular, I think in some ways the profession uh, is playing – uh, catch up uh, with regards. And again, it's very complicated because there are elements of trade, technology, and immigration that are impacting labor yeah. markets. And it's hard to sort out the independent effects. And David, this is a key insight of Megden Desai of LSE is we underestimate within our models the tangible complexities. Mm that are there each and every day. And of course, they do that in spades in Washington. Richard, let's look ahead to next week, this Federal Reserve yeah. Board meeting taking place next week, Tuesday and Wednesday. There'll be a press conference to follow. I imagine there will be some questions about personnel. We'll see if the Fed chair answers them. But mm-hmm. certainly the departure of uh, Stan Fisher, the vice chair, just about a month from now, I think he said, on or around the 13th of October, mm-hmm. does stand to change this group of policymakers uh, even more uh, dramatically. A lot of vacancies here uh, yes. on, on the FOMC right. Uh, right now. What do you make of it? Well, there are a lot of vacancies, um, and in particular, you know, Stan Fisher, who was a professor of mine and and uh, who I've admired for for decades, will be a big loss uh, to. Uh, the Fed, in particular, speaking more narrowly, I think most folks, including myself, sort of saw Stan either at the center or perhaps maybe a little bit to the hawkish side of the committee. And to the extent that uh, vote is finally balanced, uh, then that I think does mean as we move in towards the December meeting, yeah. when perhaps the next rate hike will be discussed, you know, that is one that's one voice that will be absent from the discussion since it's very unlikely anyone right. will be reappointed by that. With your interesting perspective here, the textbook Dornbush. Fisher stars really doesn't have in it a four standard deviation crisis. Stan Fisher lived that in 1998. How critical is it that the new Fed 
has to have a little bit, a, a couple people that have actually lived it instead of studied it. No, I, I think I, I think that is important. I think, and and obviously each crisis is different, but but having that experience is important. Obviously, you know, Chair Chair Yellen is still there, and she was certainly very experienced uh, in the Federal Reserve System uh, during uh, the the crisis as as well. You right. obviously Bill Dudley at the New York Fed. So the Fed is not absent that yeah. experience, but certainly losing Stan is is uh, is uh, notable. I've got to ask the journalist yeah. question: If you were called upon by the president, would you serve as chairman? Uh, I've not been called upon by the president, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. but but obviously as a student of monetary uh, uh, policy, you know obviously that's a very important uh, job. But I'm, yeah. I've not been I've not been called. Were you at dinner president. last night with the president? I was not at dinner <laughs> okay. last night with the president. Richard Clareda, thank you so much at Columbia University, uh, and of course with uh, Pimco, truly one of the nation's leading theorists and applied theory within monetary economics. From New York, this is Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance. We're having a wonderful time here. What a great set of guests, including just having Richard Clarida uh, with us. Does, does Mr. Woolsey understand this is radio and he can't talk when we're on air until he's... He's telling know. us... I was telling him how I had to pick up Bailey at school, drive her to soccer practice, and then go <laughs> and get you wanted Dylan the CIA to drop in and work on this. No, he had three... He was the Little League coach, so we yeah. were trading war stories about... You know, driving kids all over. This is the important stuff, Tom. This is the real Bloomberg surveillance. <laughs> yeah, David Gura, why don't you bring in the esteemed James Wilson? James Wilson, the 16th director of the uh, the CIA, here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. And there's so many directions we could go in here, but let's let's talk a bit about North Korea. Obviously, we saw the latest round of uh, UN sanctions a few uh, weeks ago, and uh, the Security Council meeting after uh, a recent nuclear uh, test. Are there diplomatic options available yet? Uh, you notice the change in rhetoric from the South Koreans who'd been uh, in favor of some some diplomatic solution to this uh, under their new president, starting to erode some. The timing might not be right. They're, they're saying, what's the path forward as you see it here? Uh, I think there's only one diplomatic path uh, forward. Theoretically, there could be two, dealing with Russia and dealing with China. But uh, Russia is uh, nothing in here except a troublemaker uh, and uh, working for more and more dominance of uh, more and more of Eurasia. Uh, China is our only real shot, and um, the Chinese are very cautious on this because they don't want uh, anything, war or even disruption. They don't want a flow of refugees uh, from North Korea into China, and uh, they don't mind making us a bit bugged uh, by uh, their foreign policy, So, um, but they can be worked with. So if there is to be a peaceful solution of this, it probably will involve some very important uh, uh, work between uh, the United States and and China. And uh, uh, that's the only way I can see it could come about without violence. In your previous job, I imagine you had to to do a bit of reading people. And uh, when I look at Twitter and I see what the president tweets, you can read a bit of uh, emotion into a lot of of what he's tweeting about on the heels of that nuclear test. He talked about uh, economic sanctions or changes to all countries doing business with North Korea entirely. Of course, that would be China uh, as well. How how worried are you about uh, the emotional reaction to things like this by the president in a public forum like Twitter? Well, we've been here uh, before in uh June of uh, 64, we had two destroyers off Vietnam, the Turner Joy and the Maddox. Uh, One of them took a a shot around uh, from the North Vietnamese. 
And uh, President Lyndon Johnson said, uh, you know, if they continue uh, attacking us, uh, we're going to really let them have it, or words to that effect. Um, there was what it was first seemed to be another round fired by the North Vietnamese the next day. Turned out that was not the case. It was a radar glitch of some kind. Um, but uh, the president thought mm. on his first impression that uh, North Vietnamese had attacked us again. And within three or four days, uh, the Tonkin Gulf Resolution had gone to the Congress and we were at war. We went to war by mistake in, in Vietnam. Um, and uh, you don't want to make decisions on Twitter in the middle of the night. Um, if you're going to do anything forceful, and especially if you're going to go to war, mm. Um, you want to get your best advisors around you and take a bit of time and consider this and consider that and, and, and have some debate and discussion and research and so on. You, you don't want to uh, jump the gun, so to speak. Last question here about social media. There was a piece uh, by a Bloomberg reporter yesterday about Bob Mueller's investigation that he's going to train some of his focus here uh, on the role uh, that social media played in influencing the, the election. Of course, Facebook admitted I think $100,000 was spent by – Russian troll farms on, on ads during the course of the, of the campaign. Somebody in that piece said this is the, the soft underbelly of, of uh, counterintelligence <clears throat> these days, that uh, mm-hmm. a country can do this without the U.S. having much recourse. We're not prepared to deal with it. Mm-hmm. How worried are you about uh, the way that social media is being used to influence politics and policy? It's a serious uh, problem. Uh, uh, it's not new that the Russians are interfering in elections. They haven't had much opportunity mm-hmm. to interfere with ours, uh, uh, but because uh, they had to cross an ocean to, to do it, to, to smuggle an agent in to do X or Y, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, in what's new is cyber. Mm-hmm. They can now attack and uh, uh, draw down our stockpiles of information and interfere and uh, create uh, false uh, Mm. news, as people say. All of that um, is very doable, and the Russians are good at it. Uh, So we are now uh, not protected by our two oceans as we Uh are used to uh, Uh being protected. Uh, The cyber uh, hackers don't Uh care, and uh, we have a serious, serious problem Uh on this. Never enough time. James Woolsey, thank you so much. I've got about 10 more questions. So we'll we'll do that again (laughs) next time. The former director of the CIA and, of course, in these important times with News Overnight on North Korea. He was finished at Vanderbilt University. Why don't you bring in our next guest? Say he, he he began there, headed he began off to there. headed off to Charlottesville after that for a yes. law degree, and to Oxford after that. Uh, the man from Centerville, Mississippi, uh, then Baton Rouge uh, Parish, representing Louisiana in the U.S. Senate, alongside uh, Bill Cassidy, uh, succeeding David Vitter uh, in the U.S. Senate. He's been on the job here for about what eight nine months now. Uh, great to have with us John Kennedy, Senator John Kennedy, on our phone lines. Great to have you with us. Let me ask you a question. You're you're, you're fairly new to the job still. You just got back from a an August recess. We're talking to your constituents back home in in Louisiana. What's uh, what surprised you the most about this job since you started less than a year ago? Um, the pace. Uh, I have a pretty uh, I have a pretty decent work ethic, uh, but but I'm I'm a very policy oriented and I like to do a lot of reading. And in my former job as state treasurer, I could find during the time during the day to read. I can't do it up here. I have to do it on at nights and on weekends. <sighs> That, I'm not. I'm used to that. But uh, the, the other thing that uh, has surprised me is about is how uh, 
how few lobbyists come in, and I try to meet with, with everyone within reason, but how few of them come in and really seem to want you to understand the issue. For many of them, it's almost like just checking off a box. Uh-huh. Okay, they've talked Brilliant. to Kennedy. They, they start, they use a lot of acronyms. They start at, at in the weeds. I'd prefer to, to start at 30,000 mm-hmm. feet, and they can tell me how to land the plane later. But they've got to get me in the plane and up in the air first. And those have been my two biggest surprises. Um, uh, I, the people I've met are, are in the Senate. I've met all of my colleagues. There are a few jerks. Um, they're, they're, one or, they're one or two that think they're one of the founding fathers. Uh-huh. You know, you couldn't put the, fit their ego. The Capitol barely contains their yeah. ego. But for the most part, um, they're, they've been all very cordial. Uh, yeah, they're interesting people. I hadn't met a dummy yet. How have you found your, your way around the, the city? We've been paying attention, of course, to the dinners. The president's been convening uh, at the White House, the one most recently with the Democratic uh, leadership. What's your sense of the, the strength of that relationship, the robustness of that relationship between the legislative branch and the executive branch right now? Well, there, there's, you know, the, I'll paraphrase an old joke. A, uh, a liberal, a conservative, and a moderate walk into a bar, and the bartender says, Hi, President Trump. You, you, you don't really know exactly. I mean, the president is, is, is less of an ideologue and more of a, a, a business person. Uh, he, he's like a lot of business people that I've known. He, he's a developer. I mean, his objective is not to discuss the, uh, the nuances of architecture. It's to get something built. He hires people to handle the nuances of the architecture. Uh, I, my meetings with him have been very professional. Um, he's in the, in the four or five meetings I've been in with him. He knows exactly what he's talking about. He knows what he wants. Mm. He allows other people to talk. It doesn't bother me that he is his uh, trying to work something out uh, with our friends mm-hmm. on the Democratic side. I, I, I'm trying to work something out with them too. But yeah. so far, the only reason way. You- Helping out with them is do everything they want you to do. <laughs> Senator, one of the great joys uh, of your work is you've lived off the East Coast, off the West Coast of this nation, out of East Baton Rouge and Zachary High School. You made headlines across all of Washington with your comparison of six mayonnaises at the local convenience store in Washington, D.C., versus mm-hmm. the choices for the kids of Zachary High School in Louisiana. How do we bring prosperity to your Louisiana that you grew up with? Well, let me say about my mayonnaise comment. I'm in it. I'll double down on it. I think it's an embarrassment to us as Americans that, as a parent, I have more choices of mayonnaise than I do where to send my kid to school. Um, And I think that's, that's a sad commentary. But the most important thing for America's prosperity right now, in my opinion, is is to improve the economy. And we've done everything we can do on the monetary side. Yeah. We're not going to get back to 3% growth unless we do it on the fiscal side. The genesis of most of the anger in America, I believe, is because middle-class Americans like me look around. They see too many undeserving people at the top getting bailouts. Mm. They see too many undeserving people at the bottom getting handouts. Yeah. And the folks in the middle get the bill, and they can't pay it anymore, and their wages haven't gone up.
I'm fascinated. Mr. Trump took 58.1% of Louisiana's vote. Secretary Clinton, 38.4%. How has it changed? When you go back and you're in the diner and you're, you know, a pro at the diner politics, how is the Trump support changed in the Trump land of Louisiana? I think think a, a small minority of people in my state well, of course, some just don't like him. Um, he didn't get 100% of the vote. Yeah. Uh, but but of, the, of his supporters, a small minority are, are find very curious the way he, he has approached the presidency. Uh, but uh, but a, uh, a large number, probably the majority of people in my state, are angry that more hasn't been done in Washington. And they're not angry at the president about it. They're angry at the United States Congress. Now, you can debate whether that's fair or not, but I'm just telling you how they feel. Let me ask you about two two big issues in the news right now. Of course, there's this big data breach. We're continuing to follow uh, the, the ramifications of that. Equifax saying more than 140 million uh, Americans may have had their data compromised. I know that's something that you and your constituents must be worried about. Let me ask you about DACA as well. So we'll, we'll take mm-hmm. them each in, in kind. Uh, I wonder how you react to what the president's been tweeting uh, this morning. If you, if you think uh, this program needs to, to stay in existence and if you're optimistic yeah. here that the Congress is going to do it. I think we do need to address the DACA issue and the Dreamers. Uh, I think we need to address the whole immigration problem. There's been a 15-year bipartisan effort in uh, in Washington to to pretend to care, but th- but this place has ignored our immigration laws. I, I don't think, though, that's even close to being the most important topic on our plate. Tax reform is no question. Senator uh, Brandon from Memphis, Tennessee, uh, emailed us in this morning on Sirius and XM and loves uh, listening to you out there. Is it good that your president is taking dinner with Speaker Pelosi and Senator Schumer from the evil city of New York? You say your people (laughs) want to get things done. Isn't a bipartisan president breaking the eggshells of Republican certitude? Is that a good thing for Senator Kennedy of Louisiana? I'm, I'm, well, first, I, I, I don't think the president's going to check with me before he does his schedule, but since you're asking my opinion, and I want to be clear the president hasn't asked my opinion, uh, I think it's great. I mean, what's wrong with having, I don't know Ms. Pelosi, I know, I know Chuck a little bit, he's, he's an interesting guy, I don't agree with him with a, uh, on a damn thing, but <laughs> how, how, how can it hurt for them to talk? Now, if the president starts giving away the store, um, the way we negotiate in Louisiana is you get something and I get something. I, really? I, I, want, I want to make – and I think that's the yeah. way the president used to do his business deals. Um, I mean, so far, my experience with our friends on the Democratic side is that, number one, they'll tell you privately, look, we'd like to work with you on this, but we can't because our base is has white-hot anger at Donald Trump. We can't uh, – uh, to pretend to even cooperate because we'll end up with a challenger in our primary. Well, and and that's what the Republicans went through a few years ago with the Tea Party. You can debate whether it made this place better or worse, but that it is what it is. And I, so far, I ha- I've ha- heard them talk about bipartisanship, but I haven't seen them do anything. People around here talk a lot, so I've learned you got to watch what they no. do. Senator Kennedy, thank you so much. We look forward to speaking uh, to you again, and of course with our David Gurra on his uh, television show on politics, and of course from our 99.1 FM studios in uh, Washington. He is John Neely Kennedy.
and he is from Louisiana. David, that was a joy. It was a joy. And, I, you know, I, I, I went into that eager to get that, that unique perspective he has as uh, one mm-hmm. of the, the newest members of the, the Senate. He delivered. We got some good, good perspective well, on thanks that. Thanks for listening Coast to Coast. Particular thanks, gentlemen Memphis, uh, listening on SiriusXM. Greatly appreciate that. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.